Well, I want to congratulate you this morning. Congratulations. All right, that's good. Yeah. Uh, just because you are here this morning or because you are listening online, I have a great gift for you. You will receive today, our deacons will hand to you as you leave today, an honorary certificate from Rick's Life Coaching Training. Just because you were here, right? You'll get an honorary certificate. Aren't you impressed? I mean, isn't that just exciting news? Uh, th there is one catch, right? There, there's, one, there's always a catch, right? Uh, there is a final exam that I'm going to give to you right now. So you have to pass the final exam, but you will receive that certificate, honorary certificate of Rick's life coaching. So um, uh, the good news is there's just one scenario and one question on the final exam. So you ready? Thinking caps on? I, I know, man, it's early in the sermon. I'm already asking you to think, right? Okay, so here's, here's the scenario. I hope you can catch me over here, Leah. Um, Leah's just going, oh my gosh, she just moved way over there. I've got to find out what to do. So here, here, here's the scenario, okay? Someone walks into your life coaching office time and time again, and when they come into your office, they make it extremely apparent what their desire in life is. And today, we're going to call that desire A, right? So that could be a, a really good job. My, my, my desire is to have a really good job or to have a really great relationship or, or even to know Jesus, right? So all these things are, are good things. So I just want to put a really good desire in A. And so this person comes into your office and time and time again, they share with you what their deepest desire is and it's desire A. Everybody with me? So... One other thing, though, that you notice about them, that though this is very clear as to what desire A is, they seem to spend all of their attention and energy on item P, R, and Y, which spells, see, see what we're doing here? Right? So their, their desire is A, but all of their attention is on P, R, and Y, which happens to be prying, <laughs> into their deepest desire, prying them from their deepest desire. So here's the scenario. They come into your life coaching office. You know their deepest desire, but their back is turned to their deepest desire because so much of their focus is on P, R, and Y. So here's the question for your final exam. What is your counsel to this person whose back is on their desire and their energy and focus is being distracted on other things. Oh, see, you think I'm doing something with these letters, don't you? Ah, that's not bad. So pray would be a good answer. I'll pass you on that. Somebody said it. Turn around! Right? So this is not hard, right? Your deepest desire is A, you're distracted by P, R, and Y that is prying into your deepest desire. Your greatest coaching strategy here is turn around and start chasing after your deepest desire. Not rocket science, is it? Pretty easy. You all pass. Certificates no, there's no certificate. Uh, you don't want a certificate. So uh, it, it, it's e easy peasy, right? Well, well, be careful because as easy peasy as that might sound, 
I think today we understand that doing that is quite difficult. Jesus once told a story that I think has a lot to do with this scenario, probably a familiar story to many of you. And I think the story then leads to our text in 2 Kings this morning. How many of you remember the story of the prodigal son? Right? Uh, So Luke chapter 15, if you want to do some homework uh, today as you go home over lunch, Luke chapter 15 is the story. But a quick reminder of the story. This is Rick's national standard version of the prodigal son. Are you ready? So there's a dad, once upon a time, I keep going in and out here, Brad. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me? Oh, can you? Okay. I feel like I'm going in and out. Anyway, so once, I'll just keep preaching. Once upon a time, my mouth's big enough that you'll hear me no matter what. Once upon a time, there was a dad. He had two sons, and he went into a contractual agreement with both of his sons that they could have their inheritance at any time, right? Uh, The condition was, seemingly, that if you took your inheritance before he died, you would get less of an inheritance than if you patiently waited for that to come in a natural way, right? And so the first son, the younger son, was eager, right? Man, he wanted his inheritance. So he says, I don't care if I get less. I'm signing my contract. I'm taking my inheritance, and I want the money now, right? And he went, and he spent it in what Jesus calls in the story reckless living. We won't go into his reckless living, but that's what he did. And he went and he spent all of his money to the point in which he was desperate, right? And so the story goes on that this younger son now is spending all of his inheritance, sells himself to a farmer in order to feed the pigs. And he finds himself time and time again in the pig pen, feeding the pigs, only desiring that he would have such a good meal as they have, right? And so he gets this crazy thought, right? That only if I would go home to my father and offer him my service that I would get treated better than I'm getting treated here. And here's the point of this younger son. He had a change of heart. You see, he was really good, this younger son, at going after his desires. Uh, Unfortunately, his desires in the beginning of this story were bad ones, right? But he went after them. Right? And then he had a change of heart, and then he had a desire that was much better. The desire was to return to his father. And so he does. And the amazing part of this story, right? The phenomenal part of this story is that as the son goes home, he finds his father waiting on the front porch. Literally knowing that every day he has waited for his son to return. And his dad sees him, gives him 40 lashes, sends him to his room, and says, you're grounded for 30 weeks. Is that what he says? No, if you've read the story, it's actually quite different. Actually pretty surprising. The father runs off the porch, hugs and kisses his son, dresses him in great robes, and says, we're going to throw a party. And his son says, listen, I just want to be a servant. He says, forget that. I don't want to hear that. The reality is, you are my son. Welcome home. It's a beautiful story. But there's another son, isn't there? Uh, The older son is in this story, and he's a field far off. Now, his desire, obviously, in being, staying on the farm, is to serve his dad and to be there for his dad. He's been the good son, hasn't he? Well, he 
he's in a distant field and he hears a ruckus. It sounds like a party. And so he asks someone, what the heck is going on? He says, oh, your younger brother has come home and your dad has thrown him a party. And Jesus says that the older son is very angry. He wasn't so glad to see his brother. You see, I think what we find out about this older son is though it seemed as if his devotion and his desire was in a, he literally had turned his back on that and he's been pried away from his desire by greed and by jealousy and by envy so that when the younger brother comes home, he can't join the party. Now the story ends really abruptly. Most commentators say that the reason the story ends abruptly is to ask a question. And that question is this. Do you have a changed heart like the younger son? Or do you have a hard heart like the older son? Do you have a changed heart like the younger son? Or do you have a hard heart like the older son? Today's message is not on the prodigal son, but I do think our story from Elisha's life today is a, listen, a real live story of this parable that Jesus tells literally thousands of years after our story today has happened. And it leads us, I think, to some hard questions for ourselves as we come to this table. You ready? I want you to turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 15 through 27. 2 Kings chapter 5, 15 through 27. If you have your Bibles or your electronic devices, that's good. Uh, in being able to read along. We're actually going to take the text in two chunks this morning. But those of you who just might be joining us this morning, know that we've been studying the life of Elisha uh, since January. Amazing stories of miracles of hope. Those of you who have been here, I think, have relished in maybe some familiar stories, learning new stories, but seeing hope time and time again through the prophet Elisha. Today, Elisha is a secondary character. And the story is not so much a miracle of hope as much as a question as to how we are responding to the miracle of hope in our lives. So I want you to hear that. Today, you won't see the amazing miracle, right, in Elisha's life, but today is a response to the miracle. It's asking us a question. If indeed you've been amazed by the miracle of God in Elisha's life, it's asking us the question, how will we respond? So let's look at some people that we've already met and observe their response to the miraculous hope of God. And the first person I want you to see again is this guy by the name of Naaman. And I want you to see Naaman today as the prodigal, as the younger son. 2 Kings 5, verse 15. Then he, this is Naaman, returned to the man of God, which is Elisha, and he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And Naaman said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. 
And he urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And Elisha said to him, go in peace. Let's look again at Naaman. Remember Naaman? We read the thrust of his story last week. He's a prominent enemy of the people of God who had been struck with a debilitating disease, deadly disease called leprosy. But miracle after miracle, this was the miracle that we saw last week, miracle after miracle leads Naaman to Elisha, who is a prophet of a God that he doesn't believe in, and then resistantly to the Jordan River, where he was miraculously healed of his leprosy. This is astounding. I hope you spent all last week going, that was amazing, right? Naaman's A, his desire was to get healed. And while there were many bumps in the road, Naaman eventually got there. Now, if you are a prodigal (laughs) and you feel far from God this morning, yet wondering if he will ever take you back, then this story of Naaman should be a great source of hope because he was the most unlikely to ever be accepted by God and yet he's healed. And today we see his response and what I want you to see is the response of a changed heart, the response of a younger son, a prodigal. Naaman returns to Elisha and the conversation is what we just read. It's fascinating yet simple. So let's follow it. First, I want you to hear Naaman's testimony of truth. The first thing that Naaman does is he comes up out of the Jordan River and his leprosy is gone is he takes his uh, black Escalade chariots, right? Remember we talked about all that last week? So his whole entourage and he goes to Elisha's house. He goes back to Elisha's house. He gets out of his chariot. He knocks on the door and it seems like Elisha actually comes to the door this time, right? And he says to him, listen, Thanks, and in thanks, uh, I want to give you some gifts. But before he even gives the gifts, sorry, getting myself ahead of myself, right? Before he even, he says this to Elisha. The Lord of Israel is now my Lord. In fact, the, the quote's even better. As uh, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. You don't look amazed. This is, a, this is an amazing moment. This is a hallelujah moment right here, right? So you have Naaman, who's an enemy of God, an enemy of Israel, gets healed, and now he's coming to Elisha, and he goes, not only am I grateful that you've healed me, but I'm telling you, my whole life, my whole heart has been changed. And I tell you today that there is no God, not my God back in Syria, not any other God in any part of the world, not any God from my heritage, not any God from my past. There is no God except the God of Israel, except God Jehovah. You know what it says is that his heart has been changed. He is not only cleansed from his leprosy, but he has been cleansed from his sin and he has been received by God. 
That's amazing. It's an amazing moment. It is the prodigal moment, right, of when the son comes home and the father dashes off the porch to hug him and kiss him and welcome him. So the first thing that Naaman does, his first response is to give praise to God. Secondly, then, out of gratitude, offers Elisha an extravagant gift. So uh, we think that Naaman probably brought the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars of gifts with him, thinking that he might need to pay someone to get healed, right? And so he's like, I'm going to load up the bank account, right? Here, here it is. I, I'm gonna, just in case I need to pay somebody to heal me, and do it. well, it didn't cost anything to get healed. And so here he is now with a thank offering saying, listen, take it. Elisha, thank you. Take it. And Elisha says... No. Why does Elisha say no? Well, it's a beautiful picture, actually, of the free grace of God. There is nothing that we can bring, nothing in our hands to bring in the reality of knowing the grace of God. We can't pay for it, and we can't thank him enough for it. There is no offering that can come close to the cleansing of our sin. So Elisha wisely turns it down. And then this story takes a really interesting, strange shift. Did you catch it? Naaman, instead of offering a gift, actually asks for a gift. He says, since I'm returning to a land that has no place to worship my newfound God, Jehovah God, can I take some dirt from here so that I might worship God from holy dirt? Did, did you catch that? Naaman goes, here, take these gifts. No, other one's gifts. Well, then, can I have a gift? Uh, can I get my guys to take a couple mule loads of dirt so that when I go back to my land where there is no dirt of holy ground that I can build my altar and worship my God, my newfound God on holy dirt. Before Elijah has a chance to respond, Naaman asks another even more confusing question. Maybe the most confusing thought of all. N Naaman asks Elisha for a pardon in advance. He knows that in returning home, he will once again be in subjection to his king. And his king will enter the temple of a foreign god, Ramon. And it will be Naaman's responsibility, it will be his job to usher the king to this temple. So, here's Naaman thinking in advance, right? If my heart is right, is it still okay to do my job in taking the king into a foreign god's temple? Woo! Now, if you'd like, I'll stick around for about two and a half hours, and Elijah Bombeck will answer all the questions from that reality, right? So here's a big question. Like, am I allowed to do something wrong, but if my heart's right, it's okay? I mean, that's really what he's asking. Like, I'm going back, and, and my job is that my old king's going to hang onto my arm, and I'm going to take him into a foreign god's temple, and he's going to bow there to a temple. Is that okay? Now, there's a lot of interpreters that want to dig into that and expose that. And quite frankly, as I often say, sorry if it's offensive, get their underwear in a bunch over that reality, right? Like, whoa, are we allowed to do that? Should, like, we should do that? What am I allowed to do? Not allowed to do what? Yeah, blah, 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 blah. And that's not the point. 
You know the point that God wants us to see, the point that the historian is making as he writes 2 Kings? It's not whether you get permission to do something wrong if your heart's right. He's only pointing to the devotion of Naaman. Naaman's already thinking about when he goes home, how is it that I might live for my new God? It's all about his devotion. It's all about his changed heart. Which is why Elisha says, Go in peace. Elisha must have smiled. Says, dude, you really don't need the dirt, right? But if you want the dirt, take the dirt and go in peace. Your life has been changed by God. Your heart is new. It's a beautiful picture, is it not, of the prodigal. A changed heart. Now see the contrast. In the English version, yes, the ESV and many other of the English uh, translations, there is a but in the middle of verse 9. There's not a Hebrew but in there, but there is a definite change in tone. I want you to hear now Gehazi's story. And I want you to hear Gehazi's story as one who is more like the older son. Starting in the middle of verse 9, it says, But when Naaman had gone from him, Elisha, a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this name in the Syrian and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? Gehazi said, all is well. My master has sent me. (laughs) No, he hasn't. Anyway, my master has sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. Let me double it up. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, "Eh, nowhere. But Elisha said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money? And garments, olive orchards, and vineyards, sheep, and oxen, male servants, and female servants? Therefore, Gehazi, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. You hear how the mood has shifted. In this text, we are reminded that Gehazi is the servant of Elisha, the man of God. And I think the historian, as he writes that, says, I want you to remember some things about Gehazi. Gehazi has had a front row seat to miracle after miracle after miracle of seeing the power of God. He heard Elisha prophesy that the barren Shunammite woman would have a baby, and she did. He was there when Elisha then raised that child from the dead. He was standing by as the poisoned stew was made edible by a handful of flour. Then he was a witness to a Syrian commander get healed of leprosy. Holy cow, Gehazi. 
Like, we look at Gehazi and go, man, if I was Gehazi, I would love God. Man, he, I, I've, I've seen it. Why can't I have all those miracles? I would love God if I was Gehazi. Be careful. Because it's obvious in this text that Gehazi has turned his back on his desire and has run after other things. First notice that Gehazi has a plan. It says that Naaman is just a short distance away when Gehazi begins to chase after him. It's a premeditated heist, right? He must have been standing by when Elisha says, I don't need all your wealth. I don't need your hundreds of thousands of dollars. And Gehazi in his mind's going, daggone, we are in a famine. How good could all of these resources be? My master has lost his mind. Ah, but when Naaman leaves, I'll chase after him. He had a plan. And he justified his plan. I don't know if you talk to yourself. I often do sometimes. It's the only person that will listen. Gehazi is talking to himself, convincing himself that Elisha has missed his chance. Think of all the good things we could do with this money. Won't I be the hero when I go get something from him? And so he sets out. And as he sets out, Naaman sees him coming. Naaman gets down off his chariot. All is well. All is well, master. But then it goes downhill quickly. First he had a plan. Second he justified his plan. But then third he had to lie about his plan. Right? He catches Naaman and says, Elisha sent me. No, he didn't. Lie number one. Then he said, hey, there are some new prophets that have come to town. No, there hasn't. Lie number two. And as if he has Elisha's authority, he then asks for ridiculous provisions. If these prophets would have gotten two talents of silver and the garments that were there had been the richest guys in the house. Lie number three. Naaman, in his changed heart, complies, and it seems as if even doubles the gift, and Gehazi returns to Elisha, and he says, look what I got, aren't I good? Isn't that what he said? <laughs> no, what did he do? He hid them. He says he went to some hill. Nobody really knows what the hill is, but the Hebrew word there for hill means darkness as well. And so what we believe that Gehazi has done is he's gone to some secret place that he has so that he can hide the heist in shame and in guilt. And then he shows up. You've got to give him some credit. Oh, Elisha's probably expecting me. And so he shows up to Elisha. And Elisha goes, where have you been? Nowhere. People of God, you learned a long time ago not to lie to your mother, right? Young children, you need to learn this. Don't lie. She's got eyes all over her head. She always knows what is it. So, listen, if there is wisdom in not lying to your mother, there is even more wisdom in not lying to a prophet. <laughs> so, Elisha, seemingly just in conversation, says, Well, you know, my heart actually kind of turned over in my chest when I realized that Naaman got out of the chariot to greet you. And, and, and then my heart was even more concerned when I realized that you were taking things from him. And then, do you notice what he says? He says, not only the silver, not only the clothes, but orchards and manservants and 
women servants and, and uh, all kinds of other stuff, the, the, the animals, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, wait, I'm going back. He didn't give them all that. But listen, what Elisha knew was that he was going to sell the things that he had in order to buy more wealth. See, Gehazi, Gehazi has an uh-oh moment. And it reveals not only a lying heart, but a greedy heart. And not only a greedy heart, but an envious heart. Not only an envious heart, but a covetous heart, a jealous heart, a distracted heart, that are all signs of a hard heart, the heart of the older brother. And quickly, don't miss the irony of God in this story. Gehazi set out to get all that he could from Naaman, and the only thing he ended up with was what? His leprosy. <laughs> when we seek after other things other than God, be careful. We may just get the evil that we're chasing after. It's a sad story. But maybe a familiar one this morning. And it causes me to ask of myself first and then so of you. What are we chasing? What are we chasing? Are, are we chasing after the things that we desire? Or are we chasing after things that are distracting us from the very thing we should desire? What are we chasing? Chasing the things we say we desire? Are we saying we desire one thing and running after something completely different in premeditated sprints while justifying our sin and lying to ourselves and others about our lives of devotion? The question for my heart this week was this. Sofer, are you chasing after righteousness? Or are you chasing after what Jerry Bridges called a number of years back respectable sins. Now here's something about this respectable thing, sin thing. Bridges is not suggesting that there are respectable sins. Hear that. He's only suggesting that in our hard-heartedness, in our older brother selfishness, we begin to justify or make less of things like our envy, our covetousness, our jealousy, our little white lies and our lusts. I think we can all sit here this morning and say for the most part that we desire to chase after righteousness. It is what our desire A should be, and we know that this is what the Bible teaches. We want to be like Naaman, offering God our lives, scooping up dirt to make our worship holy, a desire that even in the hard things that we would do them somehow unto the Lord. We want to chase after righteousness. But we're often like Gehazi. Though we have spent a lifetime in church and know what is right, we have spent much of our time chasing after other things with our back on our true desire. You with me? Or like, am I the only one that this convicts? <laughs> I'll take that amen to a solution, Peggy, right? So here's the final question. How do we change our story? If our story really is a Gehazi story, how do we change that story? 
How do we live more like Naaman and less like Gehazi? How do we live more like the prodigal and less like the older brother? How do we live with a changed heart more than a hard heart? I think it is first where we choose to start. Naaman and the prodigal son both knew they were sinners. And they got what they didn't deserve. And so they found themselves chasing after the one who had saved them. Their starting point was, I'm messed up and I need saved. And so their chasing was after the one who could save them. They were sinners seeking the gift of mercy. Gehazi and the older brother were trapped in thinking that they already had the gift of mercy and it led them down a path of entitlement that leads to being a sinner. Hang with me. Catch it. One moves from sinner to mercy and the other moves from mercy to sin. What's your starting point? Do you know you are worse off than you know as a sinner? And then therefore seeking mercy, seeking Jesus? Or are you starting from some self-righteous place of mercy and entitlement? And out of some false sense of protection, you are being distracted by sin. How do we change our story? We change our starting point. No more do we have some entitled right to mercy. Our starting point must be a place where we deserve nothing. But Jesus has given us all. And then from there we run to Jesus. We run to this table It may be scary to admit that you are a sinner. It may be scary to admit that you are capable of being a Gehazi. But I have good news. Jesus is waiting for your honesty and wants to meet your sin much like he met Naaman's leprosy. Or how the father met the prodigal son. Jesus, by his life, by his death, by his resurrection, has healed you, cleansed you, and wants to place in you a hunger for righteousness, and he wants to starve out your drive for sin. That is the truth of this table, and it is why we run to it today. Thomas Goodwin, a great Puritan writer, has said this, Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. Here's the summary. Christ gets more joy and comfort than we do when we come to him for help and mercy. I don't know about you, that that causes my mind to just take a tick, right? Because like... I'm used to thinking that I'm burdening God by confessing my sins. Like I'm disappointing God by confessing my sins. That I'm frustrating God by confessing my sins. Goodwin says, no, listen. When you confess your sins, when you come for help, 
God says, this is exactly why I exist. And he, like the father, jumps down off the porch, runs to you, hugs you, kisses you, and throws a party that you've come. You say, well, that's good if Thomas Goodwin thinks that, but does the Bible say that? Hebrews 12.2. Looking to Jesus, who is whom? The founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the, say it with me, joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It is his joy, prodigal, to welcome you home. You know what frustrates him? Is the entitled older brother who's got a lot more going on than he wants to recognize. So listen, you not only get healed, but you fulfill all that Jesus came to do for you. But it starts with your admission that you are a sinner in need of healing, in need of a changed heart. It is a moment today to turn to the very thing that you desire a relationship with Jesus and chase after righteousness, to follow your own counsel this morning. Turn from the things that pry you away from what you really want and chase after Jesus. Evidence of a changed heart, not a hard heart. Quite frankly, what you get is a lot better than a certificate of honor from Rick's coaching, life coaching school. You get forgiveness. You get mercy, you get healing, and you get life. Naaman was cleansed of his leprosy. He was cleansed of his sin. Gehazi was afflicted by leprosy and afflicted by his sin. It is God's joy today through Christ to cleanse you, run to him, and to this table. Let's pray.